Good afternoon, good morning, good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome back to another conversation on COVID-19 sustainability and the future of business. I'm joined here today by Dr. Kevin Hanna, a professor of geography at the University of British Columbia Okanagan campus. Thank you very much, Kevin, for taking the time to join me today. No, it's my pleasure. So, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research and field of study? Sure. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Earth Sciences at UBC, um, and I'm, as you mentioned, based in our uh, Okanagan campus in Kelowna, BC. Uh, I work in on environmental assessment and impact assessment. Um, I focus a lot on regulatory affairs, and I tend to center my work on the energy industry, mining, uh, the resource industries generally, including the forest industry, throw that into the mix too. And in fact, I spent a lot of time thinking about the forest industry over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, geographically, I work primarily in Western Canada, but also in the Canadian North and Arctic. And I also collaborate with uh, colleagues in Nordic Europe. So I have a fairly good circumpolar perspective on a number of issues. So t- tell us, what was the last thing that took you up to the Arctic? What was that like? What were you there for? Well, yeah, that was that. That's an interesting story, Justin, because I was last up in the Arctic in, at the beginning of March. Um, I went up to Cambridge Bay and had some meetings with uh, colleagues at the um, Nunavut Impact Review Board, which is the agency that looks at uh, project proposals for um, Nunavut territory. I uh, had a chance to sit in on a community science event that was hosted by the Higher Arctic Research Station. And I gave a, a quick talk at the Higher Arctic Research Station on some work I do with the federal government as, as uh, one of the co-chairs of uh, the Government of Canada's Technical Advisory on Science and Knowledge. And halfway through that talk, or about three quarters of the way, one of the um, station uh, leaders came in and he had, uh, had to talk to his staff fairly urgently and I found out after that that uh, they were basically closing things off to outsiders. And so the next day, my um, colleague, a grad student named Jeff uh, Nishima Miller, and I got in a plane, left Cambridge Bay, landed in Yellowknife. We had a series of meetings the next day in Yellowknife. And uh, you could just feel it in the air that everything was changing in the north. And I found out shortly after that, that none of it had closed itself off to outsiders except for citizens of the territory. And that uh, NWT was kind of closing down too. We got back to Vancouver and the airport had this kind of surreal feeling. There were people in masks. I saw a family in full hazmat suits. The kid was wearing a visor. It was just otherworldly, you know, and you, you got the sense that things were changing very rapidly. And when I got back to the office the next morning, uh, you, or the, I guess the following Monday, actually, UBC announced that every, we were moving online and that buildings were closing down and they just wanted people to go home and shelter in place and to um, stay safe. And after that, you just sat back, continued to work from home, but you watched things change, uh, change in, in ways that were interesting and kind of cool to start with and then it got weirder and weirder and there were points where it almost seemed like they they were scenes out of a movie like the the hoarding of toilet paper was ridiculous but symbolic uh then flour and dried beans and 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 things that that supermarkets normally never run out of because people aren't all that interested in them were vanishing from the shelves and there was this sense of, of uncertainty out there that, that everything was shifting 
and changing very, very quickly. So uh, when I came back from the Arctic, it was like stepping out of one very quiet, serene, snowy, cold world into one that was uh, had some of the hallmarks of panic. There was a little bit of a threat of that, but really this great deal of uncertainty and, and worry. So was Nunavut in the Northwest Territories successful in uh, keeping COVID out of their jurisdictions? I'll be honest, I'm ignorant of of their success. Very, very few cases in the Northwest Territories. Uh, Yukon, I think, is in the double digits, but it's very, very small. And in Nunavut, as far as I know, there are no, there were no cases. So the uh, you have to fly in or take a take a boat, which is not practical at this time of year. So they were able to uh, to control who was coming in. And, and when people went went home, um, they had to self-isolate for a period of time. And, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely uh, essential that they did that. Because when you, if you spend some time in our northern um, regions and, and in the Arctic, you realize that these are places that, or many of the communities are very remote, that the medical help might not uh, be readily available uh, and that there just isn't the capacity to deal with uh, the spread of something like this. And that is uh, added to the fact that uh, housing is a chronic challenge, in, uh, particularly in, in Nunavut. So you may have several generations of a, of a family living in a relatively small house. So if someone uh, isn't doing well, um, that could have really, really profound impacts. You, there's the risk of losing an entire elder generation if this sort of thing got uh, tearing through an environment like that. So they did the right thing. And, uh, and of course, my uh, hopes and thoughts are with all of our um, friends and colleagues up there and hoping that uh, they're able to keep it at bay. Well, that, that is wonderful to hear because I, I suspect that in, in those communities, the elder generation is... Is, is revered and valued in, in ways that are different, perhaps in our non-Indigenous communities, right? I mean, they're the keepers of knowledge and they pass on oral history from generation to generation. And and I, I think the losses there are felt particularly acutely. I know there was losses in Indigenous communities here in, in British Columbia and Alert Bay, for example. And uh, it, it was seen as just a real, real tragedy, uh, perhaps more so than, you know, I mean, obviously this virus has been very cruel in, in, in its targeting unequally of a certain demographic. And so to, to see that in, in remote jurisdictions, which have just been brutal. So glad to hear that they've been safe. So anyways, in, in, in another line, you were talking about all these kind of like bizarre changes and, and, I, and I feel you. It went from like, oh, isn't this interesting? We're all figuring out Zoom to, okay, I'm dealing with a whole new reality now. And, and it's still sinking in. Right for me as a as a professor as an instructor, it's really starting to sink in just how different this is. And so you're coming from an instruction perspective, but also from like a research perspective with a very strong sort of applied aspect to your research. You're out in the field a lot. You're working with industry. You're working with government. You're really thinking about what is it like to regulate an economy, specifically the natural resource economy. And so maybe let's start with like the optimistic. Like, what kind of changes have you seen? Uh, what kind of systemic maybe changes in terms of either attitude or willingness to innovate or uh, different ways of getting things done that that would just felt impossible pre-COVID and now suddenly like there's this new operating reality? Is is that is this me just being hopeful or there is there actually a willingness to to adapt at at some more significant scale? So the short answer to that is yes. The longer answer is yes and no. Uh, 
I, I like being hopeful. Um, I like that you're hopeful. I have to admit I'm not always so optim- optimistic. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. I think there are instances where there are sectors of the economy, and you see a little bit of this in some of the resource industries, where they really just don't know what to do. Um, you know, what, what, how do they move forward? How do they reinvent themselves? How do they do things differently? Will there be a future for their product or for the things that they um, that they generate and so forth. Uh, and that that is manifest in in some um, in some corners that basically they're just hoping to sit back, ride it out, and that things will get back to normal soon enough. Um, but you know, we haven't been at this very long. It's only been a few months. And yet we've seen this uh, remarkable, monumental, economic change. We've seen uh, a decline in GDP and productivity and a huge rise in unemployment, which uh, has only come about in a, in a relatively short period of time. This is not something that's grown over the course of a year or two years or three years. It's happened in three or four months. And this poses some pretty big challenges for um, some businesses because I, um, and I shouldn't say some businesses, but I, I think more in terms of sectors, like there are sectors that, it, that have really struggled with this. And I look at the energy industry in Canada as being a very good example, but it's also a sector, the fossil fuel industry in particular, that is quite vulnerable to shocks. And those shocks, in this case, it happens to be something that really was, would have been unimaginable a year or two ago. But there are other shocks that have happened in the past. And a big question that I often have is, what, are, what did we learn from those? And did we position mm-hmm. ourselves to do things differently or better? And are we moving towards a more um, resilient economy or a more resilient energy sector? And I would have to say the answer to that is no. And I'm really dancing around your question, Justin. I kind of apologize for that. But there, there are other sectors that, um, that I think might be uh, in an interesting place. So we see, we've seen a, a you know, growth in the, in the demand for fine paper products. And, and those companies are, g- are gonna do well this year. Uh, who knew that medical grade uh, pulp would have a, a massive market? And who knew before all of this began that a good portion of that is actually manufactured here in this province for the North American market. So we've, we've had these moments where we've discovered that there are things that have taken on really high value. Um, and, and different forms of energy, ways of producing power uh, that are stable and resilient. So can you continue to operate your power production facilities with minimal staff or, on the, or at the risk that maybe people will get ill? You might be operating at 50% staffing or 25% staffing. Can you still deliver the electricity that communities want? And that's a really interesting industry because you've seen a shift in the in the power demand profile to away from places of manufacturing, and I'm thinking continentally here, to increase demand at the residential household neighborhood level. And this is all understandable given the, the shelter-in-place reality. So there's all these really interesting surprises that we've seen that make us think differently about what is what is a resilient infrastructure for doing all of these things, and what is what is doable with fewer people, and how stable or resilient are some of our industrial processes, our places of manufacturing, our places of power production, even the things that we need to keep safe, whether mm-hmm. it's um, spent fuel from a nuclear power reactor uh, or chemicals or other materials on site that may pose a hazard. Uh, if we don't have a lot of people around, are they safe? 
So there's all these really interesting questions which we've thought about in the past, but not in the way that the COVID reality has forced us to think about it. Um, hmm. So there's some some industries in Canada that that might bounce back, uh, that have suffered badly, and and, and then there's those that that won't. Uh, and so the big thinking there is okay if they won't, what's next, and how do we uh, move forward? and build something that will be able to withstand shocks like the one that we're experiencing right now, be able to continue to provide jobs and wealth and um, well-being for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, so it's a fascinating question because there's two dimensions. There's like resilience in the time of crisis, and then there's resilience over a longer time frame. And what you're essentially saying is that there's these short-term lessons that we can meet people's needs in a time of crisis with less than we realized. And we have to be more fluid in meeting those people's needs, reshifting power, reshifting goods, shifting the output of a pulp mill to make medical grade pulp, whatever it might be. But it's this more cyclical resilience, the system level resilience where it seems like we're having the hardest time. And the industry that, again, we're almost out of, almost out of respect or out of politeness out of, I guess, Canadians, we're just too polite, but the industry that we're dancing around here and the one that who has probably suffered more in the midst of the COVID crisis than anyone has been our energy industry, our oil industry, oil sands, tar sands, whatever you want to call them, uh, whatever our audience understands them to be, they've suffered like a, like a triple whammy in terms of they were already having a hard time as an industry. Prices were not as high as they'd like them to be. Then suddenly there's a price war between Russia and the United States. And then suddenly there's a secular destruction in demand that's just unprecedented. So you're at the highest, one of the higher cost oil sources in the world and price falls through the floor. You are a very capital intensive source of energy. And now, and with, with and projects require like decades in order to get a decent return on capital to justify the the expenditure to bring these projects online, and now suddenly we've accelerated an energy transition, and so like I guess it's kind of like a, what I what I find so fascinating is that you know there's voices in in Alberta and in that industry who are like okay let's think what's next is it like carbon fiber is it blue hydrogen is it is it carbon capture and storage? Like how do we become the most sustainable oil sands industry using technology and COVID just needs to accelerate that. But it's like, how are you going to do that when you're barely making any money? And there's, and you don't even know what the, the, the window of opportunity is for, for uh, your, your, for your industry. And so I'm, I'm torn because you bring this policy perspective to it. Like, do you think government should be coming in here and creating, you know, essentially creating an enabling environment for these large employer employers that create all this well-being and prosperity and bailing them out and saying, we think we're going to have a, a, a viable and large and thriving and larger than it is today oil sands industry in 10 years from now? Or do you think government should like, like, I think we haven't been particularly aggressive in, in bailing out the majors. And uh, we haven't, and like you said, we're still very early on in this. So how does, how do we figure out what planning for longer term resilience looks like? How do you avoid picking winners? Because economists would hate that. But there's a real human cost. Like, I mean, those industries have supported thousands of households, so much wealth generation. They disproportionately uh, support indigenous communities more than any other industry in Canada. Our First Nations are working with or investors in the, the oil industry. So it's a I, I always find myself totally torn, like completely torn about whether I should celebrate the demise of something that I think from a climate perspective is a product that should be accelerated out as quickly as possible, 
or whether I need to like take the time to really think about how to balance all these various competing interests with each other. Yeah. Well, what, what can I possibly add to that? It, <laughs> I think, yeah, you've, you've hit on a number of really thorny questions and perpetual issues, but um, one thing that resonates in what you've said is, okay, what is, what is the future look like? And I, I think we don't know, of course, for sure what it will look like, but there are some indicators. Uh, it's a globally traded product. Um, it has regional boundaries and regional constrictions um, in terms of who it can be sold to. And here I'm thinking about diluted bitumen, which is most of what Alberta is producing in the oil end of things. Uh, it has to be sold largely into the North American, or entirely into the North American market. There's some um, work being done to build more overseas sales. But uh, will that prove to be the answer, the panacea that I think some in Alberta think it will be? If we finish Trans Mountain, get things rolling, our problems will be solved. And, and most thinking people realize that's not it. Uh, it, it will help that mm. increased market access, but it's not going to be the answer. And I think there's also a lot of uncertainties around that because it is still competing with light, sweet crude, of which there's quite a bit out there waiting to come onto the market, uh, quite a bit of it in storage, I understand, too, waiting to come on the market. So you're competing with something that's more desirable to refine in so many ways. It's, it's really a tough one. Um, so I haven't answered your question, but if you said, would you put money into that industry? <laughs> I'd say, sure. If I, if my <laughs> ROI time was five or 10 years, sure. Maybe. Um, mm -hmm. so I've gone from a sure to a maybe right there. Anything longer than that, probably not. I'd be, I'd be looking for something else, but, uh, the really, the really, I don't know, the really fascinating dynamic that you've touched on is whether or not governments are planning for this for change and shift and some kind of different future, because I think that it's fair to say that's inevitable. Very few people would disagree with that. And we've heard the arguments, oil will never go away. We will always need it. And I, I don't disagree with that. I think for a long time we will, and there's certain sectors that can't, that will always require it. Aviation is going to be based on liquid fuels for a very long time. Um, the chemical industry will, there's a variety of, of, um, and some people hate this word boutique products that will require oil. The question is whether or not what Alberta produces is going to really play much of a role in meeting those needs in, in the long term. We've seen a lot of evidence of innovation in the energy industries, but also in the, in the kinds of things that, you, that need different forms of energy. So if there's a move to more electrification of all sorts of things, particularly transportation, it could very well be that oil isn't going to play much of a role in meeting that demand, at least in North America. And a lot of power producers have signaled that with their the kinds of turbine and power production technologies that they're um, investing in. So is Alberta planning and thinking about this? Is Canada planning and thinking about this? And the short answer is no, not in a really meaningful or effective way. And this really came home to me when I, um, when I uh, saw the uh, Alberta Premier's press conference where he was asked the question, from a reporter, very le legitimate, sensible question. Does this make you think differently about you know, the, the diversification of the future of the fossil fuel economy? And I'm paraphrasing the reporter's question here. It's, it's an important and thoughtful question and it required an important and thoughtful answer. And it could have been done so in a way that still protected the Premier's 
you know, perspective on things. And that that isn't what we got. What we got was a lot of anger, which I think was rooted in panic and fear uh, and, and a realization that, that, that this is this is a problem. So um, given the significance of this sector to the Canadian economy, uh, this is an important conversation that we have to have. It can and will be uh, part of the energy mix of Canada and the products that we produce and sell, export for, I think, a long time. But it is transforming and it is changing and we need to think and strategize about how we're going to manage that transition or it will occur uh, with, with, with little input from Canadians, from public policymakers, from our industry and we'll just end up having to deal with the aftermath. And that's not good either. Uh, so you can, you can think about change and transition and wrestle with it, wrangle it, um, you know, make it work for you. Or you can pretend that it isn't going to happen. It's all going to be okay. And that we'll just we'll go back to where we were, but we're not. That's not going to be the outcome. Um, so that, you know, we have to have that conversation and I see little to no evidence that that's happening at a strategic political level. Instead, I see anger, fear, and panic. So that's, that's trying to save or, or think about planning for an existing sector, which we understand is going through a transition. And so their response to COVID-19 is fear and panic. I'm very curious about, okay, there's going to be sectors in Canada's economy that in this transition that we're talking about towards decarbonized economy or non-fossil fuel-based economy, where we actually do better, right? Maybe, uh, and so I'm curious, some of the other assets that Canada could have exploit, could exploit gas and minerals and metals. And so are we learning from COVID-19? Like, will the government learn anything from this about, I don't know, expediting the planning and permitting process? making it more straightforward, realizing that if there are projects in the, and you can pick, pick natural gas, but I would also think that an interesting one to explore would be metals uh, in the mining industry, where we like, for example, think that if the world is about to go through an infrastructure-based recovery, which I don't think is a crazy, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm making a high-risk statement by saying that. I think there's going to be trillions of dollars of money spent on infrastructure with a green focus, in the world in the next three to five years, trillions, right? Whether it's in Japan or in Europe or in China or even in the United States or Canada around electrifying economies, building out electrical distribution grids, electrifying vehicles, building out charging points, that's going to require natural resources. That requires at its root actual commodities, some of which Canada produces. And the interesting thing is like, I don't even know how long it takes to get a new mine approved in Canada right now, but I don't suspect it's a particularly expeditious process. I don't know what it takes to get an electrical transmission line approved in order to create like a smarter grid or a more integrated grid between our provinces, but I suspect it's not a particularly expeditious process. And can we learn from COVID-19 that, yeah, we're there, we can expedite some of these processes, that we can manage impacts and do review, but with a kind of urgency and adaptability that we need in order to get the economy up and running again? Mm. Well, so let me let me go back to your your closing comment about fear and panic in, in the industry, and and I see that more among political decision makers than I do necessarily among uh, a lot of industry folks. I think they're they're struggling to articulate what it's going to look like, and they are um, you know rightfully concerned. But there's probably a more thoughtful process that's going on 
in the business community about the future. At least I, I, I hope so. Uh, so when I say fear and panic, um, I see that evidenced in the way that some politicians respond to questions. But uh, there's a lot of industry folks that I, I believe are reflecting on what's going on right now and asking themselves a lot of interesting questions about the future of the company, but the way that they 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 operate. Um, you know, and this can really be right down at the operational level of how facilities operate and function and so forth. So there's there's different um, there's different response quarters out there. Your your point about regulation and regulatory approval is, is a fascinating one because you also mentioned earlier economists hate picking winners and losers, but in a sense, in the regulatory process, you, are, you might be suggesting that we're going to do that too. We, we look at these things that need to be expedited, and we say, okay, these are the ones that we're going to green light and do it in a, a smoother, faster way. And you know what? In, in some, I think in the environmental assessment process, there might be some mechanisms, depending on the province, to be able to do that. Uh, an infrastructure-led recovery is, is it's, it's fascinating. Um, I can see some threads of that in the European Union and in Canada. Uh, I'm not sure what's happening in the United States. It's... It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a whole different setting down there these days. But, uh, but that is, that's a, a, a real possibility. You, uh, you commented on like the, the lead time for approving a mine. Uh, we could be looking at, well, five to 10 years before we're really up and, and running. And that's, that, that's a whole variety of, of approval processes. And that's why we've been really struggling with kind of redesigning our regulatory, our review and our assessment processes to try and make this go smoother. So here in British Columbia, uh, an important part of getting things done is working with Indigenous communities and governments. And so rather than doing that in an adversarial way, can we build in upfront consultation and then working together into a system to determine whether a project is viable or not? And if it is viable and we know we're going to get to yes, okay, how do we make that happen in a, a more efficient and effective way? Uh, and, and there's been some reform of these processes that has been undertaken that really is aimed at doing that. But at the same time, these reforms are trying to build in confidence in this process, that you know it's, it actually is robust, that you're getting a good review of the impacts, a good understanding of the impacts, and a, and a good plan for dealing with uh, uh, the downside of building and operating something while maximizing all the positives and the good things that come out of um, resource development projects, I think of more specifically. There is some indication that other, some provinces in Canada are gonna move towards kind of weakening the regulatory framework across the board. And in this respect, maybe COVID provides a little bit of cover to do what they've ideologically wanted to do for a while anyway. And this is, may be framed in terms of improving efficiency or reducing redundancy and all sorts of other things. But I think that's a little bit problematic because it's not, indicative of a, of a process that's thoughtful, that's really um, maintaining uh, robust oversight, ensuring that good projects get built, but rather just, just abandoning responsibility. And there's a price to be paid for that in the future too. So there's, there's a temptation to do things quickly with a sense of urgency, but it is not necessarily, in fact, it very well may yield um, outcomes that are um, pro that cause problems in in the future. Um, one challenge I see, and I you know you're let's go back to the fact that you're you're a hopeful guy, and you mentioned the possibility of, you know infrastructure, green led projects, and so forth and so forth. 
we did an interesting project where we looked at the at what uh, the um, uh, what the stimulus program funded at the end of the last uh, recession. So here in Canada, the federal government undertook a program where they paid for a variety of in- infrastructure projects. It was roughly a 50-50 contribution with some with local or and or provincial governments. And we looked at all of the prov- projects that were funded by that uh, program. And there are a couple of characteristics that were uh, evident. And I have to tell you, resilience or green qualities were neither. Uh, neither of those, neither of those two, three, or four qualities. There was a hell of a lot of roads we paid for, built, paved, repaved, rebuilt, built over again. I'm not sure. Uh, there were jokes about some in Ontario that got covered up a couple of times to keep people at work. Um, that you know, that that's a question for the Auditor General mm-hmm. to have a look at. But we we put a lot of money into into roads. Uh, if, if we comb through those projects and say, okay, which ones had resilience qualities or would add to the resilience of, of a community? And, and we had a criteria about that, uh, you know, with respect to wastewater treatment, for example, or uh, defensive expenditures like uh, fire halls or fire protection and so forth. It wasn't that much. It counted for a very, very small portion of what was done overall. And a lot of these projects had what we could somewhat um, cynically call visibility characteristics. You could imagine a lot of people seeing them passing the sign that showed that the government was doing something and there's people out there with shovels banging on a rock or whatever. And, and you know, that's important too. Uh, in fact, the government of the day was so concerned about the signage for these projects under the stimulus program that they ended up giving the sign contract to a company in the United States because it could deliver the sign sooner than a Canadian manufacturer could. So I would be very concerned about what comes out of... Um, out of any kind of stimulus or post, uh, um, you know, post COVID funding for infrastructure and, and really say, okay, this will be a good thing if we are thoughtful and careful about how we spend these tax dollars. And if we ensure that that investment is in things that will, um, well, that meet that resilience criteria, whatever that is, building that different, better, innovative, more sustainable, more resilient economy. And in doing that, we're again picking winners and losers. So we might have to do that in the regulatory process where we say there are certain kinds of projects that we want to see move through this a lot quicker. So is there a a fast track uh, process um, where we can do that? Uh, And then if we're looking at how we're gonna spend our stimulus dollars, what are we going to do? What are we going to spend that money on so that we ensure we have good value going into the future? Not just another road mm-hmm. that's been repaved, but is it a, a meaningful investment, for example, in public transportation? So what would those uh, resilience criteria be? Like, so what did you study? You mentioned wastewater treatment and defensive protections like fire. But in a let's talk about a carbon constrained world. And between 2020 and 2030, what kind of criteria, uh, perhaps from your previous study or just sort of thinking off the top of your head, what kind of criteria would you be looking to measure? Yeah, of course, that, that's an important one because one of the things that's been forgotten in this conversation, and you and I have had this, this, this talk uh, uh, over a safe distance using Zoom. Of course. We practice social distancing. Um, we've had this conversation about what would that, what, what's being what's missing in, in all of this and what might get forgotten and I, I think it could be climate change uh, you know this is a you know it's it's a wake-up call we're watching this this re- remarkable 
economic unraveling because of a virus. You can only begin to put some thought behind or imagine what a, a, a climate change affected future, which may not be all that far away, will look like. Uh, places of severe drought or severe flooding. I mean, all of the, the things that will be the more interesting weather more often, which we sometimes say is going to be one of the hallmarks of climate change. What is that going to mean for many communities, for places of production, for livelihoods that are dependent on, on, an, on a world that is somewhat environmentally stable at the moment, but will become much less so? And this, this, to me, is really, really troubling. So this, I would put at the top of the list of these kind of resilience characteristics is, does this project provide a, a net improvement, net benefit to Canada's climate change um, uh, responsibilities and to our whatever objectives we may have about reducing the nation's carbon footprint? That's, that's going to be a really, really problematic thing to do. Uh, I'd love it if government did it, but I don't think they will. They might maybe one of the tick boxes in the application form for your 500 million to do whatever. But, um, you know, to do that in a meaningful way would be, uh, would be a really good thing. There was, there was some move. Uh, I don't know which, I think it may have been the one companies that qualified for the federal wage subsidy or one of the, one of the financial mechanisms had climate disclosure attached, where if you accept this money, you have to build up your internal capacity to measure and report on carbon footprints. Mm. So that is like, we're not picking winners and losers, but we're forcing transparency and then hoping that the market will use that, you know, those kind of uh, those criteria that comes from the task force on climate disclosure in order to, uh, to maybe promote more climate friendly outcomes. Uh, another idea I've heard that's not about picking winners and losers, it's, but it was like, okay, if we're in the midst of a of depressed energy prices, let's just increase the carbon tax because people won't feel it because the energy prices are so low. This is a great time to do the, what economists like wet dream of, of dealing with climate, which is just keep raising carbon taxes except for the last thing a government wants to do in terms of saying, Hey, we're stimulating the economy by ra by raising carbon taxes. That's not going to, uh, you know, get anyone's attention or, or be politically palatable in any way. So it's, it's all, it, you're, you're right. You're in such a hard place because like, what are the measures and what's the quality of the data and how do you balance like doing the right thing in the short term and the long term? Cause like, how do you combat climate? We know combating climate is going to be expensive. How do you combat climate if government is completely cash-strapped and the economy's on life support. I mean, we did have some good news today in that our GDP is not as bad as uh, uh, as, as it was estimated it was going to be, and that there's some, oh. you know, some evidence that a recovery will will be on its way. I I'm not that optimistic. I mm -hmm. tend to think there there things will get better, but they're not going to be really great for some time. We also do not know how this thing is going to manifest itself in a second wave. What that will look like and what the you know what the long-term implications are we've been kind of spoiling canada and the government has re responded fairly quickly uh and that we've got a lot of built-in characteristics that would that would help us out we've got a good public health care system which is pretty good across all of the provinces uh in a province like british columbia you know it's very evident in in the outcomes that that investment has paid off uh, I would say the same in Alberta. Alberta's got a good centralized public health care system, which has really helped it respond uh, in, a, in a good and effective way to this. 
Um, you know, you see other challenges in, in other provinces, but overall, and then the federal government's response was pretty quick, very unified uh, and on message. And, and there was a deferral uh, or deference, I should say, to science and to the advice that was being given by professionals. Uh, there are other places in the world where that has not been the case. But I, I, I want to follow up on that because you're a scientist. Uh, maybe you call yourself a scientist. I don't know. You're an expert anyways. Do you think you're going to be deferred to more in the future? Me, personally? Yes. Do you think... You, you know, I'm honest because like, if, if one of the lessons we can take out of this is that the countries that did well are the ones that listened to the science and listened to the experts. Yeah. Will because there's been a real move towards anti expertise in the last twenty years for whatever right experts uh, experts reputations have not been doing particularly well, and if if we can tell a story of experts managing to pull us through such a difficult time, does that give us some traction? Does that give us a little more credibility when we say? We're really, really concerned about climate. Please take the time to pay attention. Or we're really, really concerned about uh, uh, ocean acidification. We're concerned about coastlines. We're concerned about freshwater withdrawals. We're concerned about overfertilization in agricultural settings. We're concerned about. Okay, so I, I have to stop you right there because I think there's just so many variables at work with respect to whether or not we listen to scientists and to, and to be frank there are some questions on which not all, not everybody in the scientific community agrees um, I would I would say that climate change is one of those ones where we do have consensus I'm not even going to say relative consensus because the number of outliers is just it's insignificant in this we know we understand there may be some disagreement about what climate change will look like going forward and how it's going to mass manifest itself and how quickly but the, 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 the difficulties are, uh, are ideological. Uh, they're rooted in um, you know, the quality or extent of public education. They're rooted in, in, uh, in, in all sorts of factors that, that affect what people listen to, what they believe, who they believe, and who they listen to. So the situ- I think the situation in the United States is very telling in many regards. It points to a number of deep structural divisive challenges that are that Americans are facing. The, the difficulty for the world is that it well it was at one time a leader in moving forward on issues of substance, on substantive questions, substantive problems. And that that isn't the case anymore. The European Union doesn't look to the US for leadership. I don't think Canada does. Um, you know, who are we going to turn to? I think you're going to see new alliances and new consortiums coming together. But those places that have made those important social infrastructure investments, I would argue, will do better uh, than places where this is this is not in the case and that there's great underlying weakness and trouble uh, in, 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 you know, in those in those fundamental realms. So I've kind of wandered away from your original question. But for, for me as a scientist, uh, don't consider myself a scientist, first of all, but I listen to I'm more than uh, willing to defer to my colleagues in in climatology and in, in atmospheric chemistry, um, in geology, I listen to my colleagues in the energy sciences, and the applied sciences. Uh, I want to know what their uh, conversations are about the reality of certain changes and transitions, and what we have to do to get away from it, and what that will look like on a on a certain level, economically and socially, and how likely it is people are going to buy in to doing certain things differently. And this is, this is really a fundamental question. 
if you're going to tell somebody you can't have, um, you know, diesel pickup truck anymore, you're going to buy an electric one, uh, they may say, yeah, no problem, uh, or not. Um, the no problem might depend on, well, what's what's on offer and how realistic is it, and will it do the job? So there's, there's all these fundamental uh, difficult little conversations that have to be had to get people to make the change that is necessary. But change, you know, change is a funny thing, too, because I think we're still in a position where we can make decisions about our future and shape it. What concerns me is that with every passing month, we lose a little bit of that flexibility and that nature will reach a point where it imposes change upon us and we'll simply have to deal with the outcome. And in some really, um, really obvious ways, this, this COVID crisis points to that, what that experience could look like. Yeah, and just how quickly, brutally, and obviously nature is capable of imposing its will. And it, it imposes surprises on us. Uh, again, I go yeah. back to, we both made this point, how, how could, who would have known a year ago that we'd be in this situation when COVID made its uh, first appearance uh, in, uh, in Wuhan? Uh, well, we've been through SARS, which was contained. We've been through MERS, which was contained. There's other things that come along, they're contained. And this, this took off. So it's, it's reshaped our thinking in so many ways. And, you know, I have to tell you, the generation I feel so sorry for are those in their sort of early 20s who, I think of all the kids in the, in the university system who've, who lost the end of their term. Uh, those who were supposed to graduate this year who, do, who will not go through that process the way that it's always been held on our campuses. And in those students who are looking forward to coming to university next year, who may or may not have that uh, on-campus experience. This is a generation that's going to be very, very deeply affected by, uh, by this event. And, um, and, and it's going to be important to help them uh, adjust and move forward. And maybe it is that they are much more resilient than we imagine that they might be. We, f we might feel sorry for them, but it could be that we have to feel sorry for ourselves. We might be technologically more savvy and able to uh, carry on in this kind of way. <laughs> isolationist environment yeah, yeah. that we find ourselves in. You're right about that. I had a most surprising conversation with a student where we were, I was, I was trying to explore how has this changed your understanding of your career and your aspirations outside of school and after school. And she's like, COVID's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Hmm. It has taught me so much about how I want to spend my time and the kind of career I want to shape for myself. And I think my entire generation, when we get over the initial shock and the rug pulled out from underneath us, is that that's going to be our starting, that's going to be our starting point. Our status quo is going to be to expect the unexpected, to expect the surprises, to expect uh, to not luxuriate in the safety and the of the status quo and the business as usual, but instead to just be kind of always thinking that whatever we have right now could really go out the window pretty quickly. And, and so they're not only resilient, they're like anti-fragile, like they're not capable of bouncing back. They're not going to have to bounce back because they're starting from like a completely different uh, starting point. And so that, that, uh, that kind of filled me with hope. It totally caught me off guard because I was expecting a lot of, you know, and, and I, I, I appreciate your point deeply. I, I'm, I was expecting a lot of students to be reaching out, talking about how sad they are about this and losing sort of the, the connection to history and tradition and communication and uh, and experience that the physical campus allows. 
but I, I'm, I was proud of a student who figured out how to draw something positive out of all of this. Yeah, yeah, that's so. um, and again, it goes back to your your hopeful nature, Justin. But uh, <laughs> you know, I want to. I've, I've been talking to a few friends in um, in in industry, uh, particularly in the uh, in the energy industries, and then also mining and construction. And uh, you know, there's, there's variable levels of hopefulness, and some have said that. Uh, that their businesses are still doing well, doing okay, particularly mining, that there's interest in developing projects, um, energy projects too, but not necessarily fossil fuel projects. Interesting enough, natural gas, maybe that's a little, it's in a little bit of a holding pattern in terms of where it might go. Uh, but I also, I'm also quite bullish on natural gas. I tend to see it as a really important um, transition fuel to other things, particularly for power production. Uh, oil, the oil folks are, well, they're just, they're waiting and, and that's understandable. Um, but there's these other industries that are growing that I think really force us to think about what is a resilient economy. And I think, I think a resilient economy is one that has diversity. And in, in that kind of diversity, there's this multiple layers of, of weaving and an activity and enterprise and flexibility and skill sets that allow us to adapt ideally very quickly to these shifting landscapes. So if you look at an, an, an economy like British Columbia's, it's a fascinating one because at one time, one in every four jobs in this province was dependent on the forest industry. That is certainly not the case today. We had a recent negative decision from based on, on NAFTA about our softwood timber industry, which has been... Um, battered and I think treated very, very unfairly by the Americans, which really, I think, demonstrates what an unstable tra trading partner they can be at times uh, and, and a difficult relationship. And, and this would have been um, catastrophic for a province like British Columbia. It's not good, but it doesn't, it has not had the economic hit that it, it would have 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago. So we've seen this yeah. province transition to a much more diversified economy, one with different kinds of regional strengths and then different strengths overall. And I'm actually fairly positive about what um, BC is looking at in, in the future. Uh, I'd also venture to say we've seen good leadership from the provincial government, which has really uh, worked with its healthcare professionals and public health officer to come up with a, a strong, consistent, good message, which has left us in a, in a good position. Now, the Premier's uh, put together a committee to advise um, government on where they'll go post this. Uh, it, it is a lot of the, uh, and this sounds a little bit despairing, it's not meant to be, but the usual suspects from the business community, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's it's neither. It's, it's to be expected. And these are voices that are important to have in the room. What I'd like to see, though, is that process broaden to bring other folks who talk, maybe talk about research, innovation, investment in R&D, um, the environmental um, sustainability of, of the province, uh, social safety net, other things that those voices, I think, need to be at that table too to talk about this. Otherwise, we're probably not going to get a very complicated or nuanced message at the end of it. It's just you know, reduce regulation, lower our application costs, and do a few other things that will make us happy. And you know what? That, that, that's okay. Maybe that will be helpful in some way, but it really isn't the way forward. Uh, this is yeah. an opportunity which we may or may not take. And it's going to be variable around the world to say, okay, 
Um, where do we go from here? And those things that have taken a huge hit and may take a long time to come back, what are we going to do to reinvent ourselves? And do we even have to make a really difficult choice to say this is not a winning industry in the long term, therefore it doesn't warrant um, taxpayer dollars? And you know what? I can tell you that lenders and investors are going to make that decision too on their own. Mm. And, mm. and sometimes that tells us an awful lot. What, is, what, is, what are lenders and investors willing to put money into? And what do they see maybe that the public sector doesn't? Uh, so, you know, I think that's that's a really, really important question. You use the term bailout, and I, I figure if we're looking at a bailout of anything, we should be running in, in the other direction. We should be in, yeah. we should be making an investment. If it's yeah. not a, if it's not a, an investment, then don't do it. If it's not an investment that you feel good about, that when you, you after you sign the check and walked out of the room, you say, I, I'm really happy, as opposed to I will never see that money again, then this is not a good thing because that's not a good place to put dollars. And keeping people employed is an important reason, but if you're looking at a bailout to do that, then maybe there's, there's, there's alternatives you need to be exploring to help people transition into a better, more resilient, more sustainable economy. Well, I think that's a, a beautiful summary, I think, of your overall thesis, which is that resilient economies are diverse and uh, resilient economies are ones that are based off of investment around things that are gonna be viable in the future. And so those are two kind of beautiful criteria and obviously much more difficult to translate into action. And it's going to mean different things in different jurisdictions to different people. And anyone who tells you that they know exactly what the future is going to look like is the first person you should stop listening to. But you can at least start setting up some sort of stress tests, some thought experiments, some scenarios uh, to move forward. So I want to end here, uh, Kevin, with, with two common questions that I've asked everybody I've talked to over the last week. Uh, and, the, and the first is... is Pretty straightforward. If there was one lesson that you would hope that the business community could learn from the COVID nineteen crisis, what would that lesson be? I'll give you two lessons, and one is um, more strategic, high level, and the other one is more operational. But I think there's lots of cases where we've probably had an opportunity to say, "Okay, there's things I've been spending money on and doing that I didn't need to do." So do I need as much office space as I do? Or is there an opportunity of creating more flexible work schedules that allows people to work from home or elsewhere? We already do that in all sorts of fields. I mean, we use all sorts of services and businesses that are located in other countries to do all sorts of, of, of work. And there's, there's the digital back and forth. Um, so I think that that's really essential. Do we need to travel as much as we did before? Do you have to be in wherever to do that meeting face-to-face? -face? Sometimes you do. Um, and that's fine. But uh, do you really have to get on a plane and go to Toronto for two days to accomplish what? Uh, do you have to be uh, at something in person? And I think if the answer to that is yes, do it. But you need to have a pretty, um, pretty heartfelt conversation about um, what it takes to get to that yes. So those kinds of operational things, space, uh, needs, travel needs, uh, the kinds of technology we can employ, um, how this experience, you know, we all think it's terrible, and it is, but what good has come from this? And so what are those operational positives that we've seen from this province or from this process, pardon me? I'll give you one example we see in healthcare that, um, I don't know, you've had a doctor's appointment in this time or 
I know you've got a, a brand new little one at home, whether you've had an appointment with a, with a physician and had to hold Owen up in front of the front of the camera to, you know, show off his red cheeks or something. But this, this is how this is being done. Is it preliminary, um, the preliminary conversation, preliminary uh, appointment is being done virtually. Uh, and in many cases, it, it, it can be dealt with at that point. Um, and then if there's a follow-up or an in-person, then they, they make that arrangement right then and there. So there's these small efficiencies and big efficiencies that I would encourage business to look at. And I can tell you right now, there's lots of businesses that are already uh, contemplating that and doing that. The second thing I think that's a takeaway, and this is more, more high level, is to ask what um, the future of your business or service is and then how are you going to innovate and think about doing things better and differently going forward. And that might touch on those operational things that I discussed, but it might really beg some companies to imagine a very different future for themselves where they see, okay, we're, we're in the business of processing this. What's the future likelihood that this is going to be demand in demand or going to be required, or do we transition into a different kind of um, firm? different kind of product development? What are we willing to spend on innovation? And how likely is it that the economy will go back to a point where it will be business as usual? I, I'll go out on a limb and say that I think there's very few sectors that are going to, at some point, be exactly the way they were before this. Very, very few. And some will change in ways that are going to be uh, absolutely remarkable. And, you know, we won't mention any names, but I think you and I can think of a number of sectors that are really in for some interesting times over the next decade as a, as a result of this experience. And you know what? It's only been three or four months. Remember, we started we started on this journey in, in late February, early March, when this really got going. And we've seen the kind of the, the jobless numbers south of the border here in Canada. We've seen the different ways that political leaders have responded to it. Uh, we've seen the effects that it's had on business. We have different businesses, but you know what? The human cost has been uh, enormous. So um, that's an important question too, is how can businesses position themselves to be able to be um, resilient employers and resilient providers of well-being? Mm. That's a be beautiful lesson. Uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. And perhaps my final question is, is what lesson have you learned? What's one habit that you have picked up in all of this. It's only been a few months, but uh, what's one habit that you've picked up that you hope sticks around? A good habit or a bad one? I mean, I, I, whatever. It could be a bad habit. That would be a first one. Well, we, we have a few of those. We live, of course, we live in wine country, so oh, and, and oh, not yes. too far from our house. There's a lot of wonderful vineyards. That's proven to be far too big a temptation mm -hmm. um, these days. But uh, we've yeah, we spent a lot more time together thinking. Uh, and I just like driving less too. I just, I'm happy not to uh, go to an office every day. And I'm happy to not be going all over the place, picking this up, doing this and so forth. And that, that is something I've, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we don't get back to that, that kind of traffic and the difficulty of commuting and, and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's just life is slower. It's quieter. I would argue it's much more thoughtful. But I miss company. Like the reality is, this is great to have this conversation. But you and I have had lots of good time sitting down, having a beer, and talking about all sorts of stuff too. 
So I do miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent Le- lessons. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for taking the time and, and sharing your perspective and experience and uh, all the wide range of examples and giving us this really interesting Canadian lens, which I think uh, should apply and help many of the folks who are listening uh, to this. So thank you again, Kevin. Thank you, Justin. You take care. 